Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, August 6th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, Sorry, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Christine Rosen is out today. We had a recording disaster early this morning, so our friend Daniel Cass had joined us for an entire first podcast that was improperly recorded by our recording program. And so we are doing a second go-round. Uh, just the three of us, Dan, will join us uh, next week sometime. Uh, and we will go through uh, a fresh as a daisy program with him. So we had talked about Gavin Newsom and his recall. We had talked about job numbers. We had talked about Cory Bush. Maybe I think we're going to downshift and not do that because we I don't know how to recreate the conversation that we were having um, because it was fresh and it was good and it's only going to sound worse on the second go round and so it's we're going to be uninspired and have deja vu and it's going to be creepy and weird so one of the things that we ended up with, that we concluded with was a conversation about uh, just general cultural stuff that we are uh, going through and experiencing and I think maybe that's what we are going to focus on now as we attempt to entertain you for the next uh, 45 or, 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 or 50 minutes. Uh, so I will start because I want Abe and Noah to be able to gather their thoughts. And I'm going to start uh, with the weird uh, idea that what everybody needs to do is watch Smokey and the Bandit. Because last night, I ended up watching Smokey and the Bandit, a movie that came out when I was 16 years old in 1977. was an unexpected, gigantic smash hit, made really for uh, when people, when this is the way things worked, for uh, Southern audiences and drive-in audiences, and it broke huge, nonetheless, uh, all across the country. I believe it was the second highest grossing movie of 1977 next to Star Wars. And... Um, uh, it is a uh, fun, fizzy, exuberant, uh, uh, laid-back but exciting uh, and, and altogether fascinating cultural document that I commend to you very highly because uh, if you remember the general storyline, um, it's about, uh, it's about a um, couple of guys who are basically trying to uh, take a bunch of cases of Coors beer across state lines, which in the 1970s was bootlegging and illegal. And uh, Burt Reynolds and his buddy Jerry Reed are going to do it anyway. And along the way, they pick up, uh, Burt Reynolds picks up as a hitchhiker, Sally Field, who is a runaway bride, a former Broadway uh, chorus girl, uh, who was uh, all set to marry the idiot son of uh, Sheriff Buford T. Justice, played by Jackie Gleason, runs, run, uh, flees him at the altar, uh, gets picked up by by Burt Reynolds in his Trans Am, and is then chased not only by the entire law enforcement uh, communities of all highway patrolmen everywhere, but also by this enraged uh, would-be father-in-law uh, who is uh, who wants to uh, get her back? Um, and everything about this movie is not only so 1970s. So of course I love that because that's the year of my teens, and you you the nostalgia is just just awe inspiring. 
but um but it is a kind of cultural prediction of the american divide uh and 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 the a, a kind of a prediction of the of the coming of reagan why because uh this is the fun side of the right the fun the fun uh libertarian playful uh you know just uh regular guy going along for the ride just wants to have a beer and not be bothered by the authorities right and um as opposed to the kind of 1970s censorious jimmy carter uh center liberal perspective on america and the kind of hippie gross hippie post hippie culture of kind of sybaritic excess and dirtiness and 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 kind of ideological criminality but you know the it's funny because popularly that's not the way i think a lot of americans see things they they look at reagan having come come in and sort of spoiled all the fun right and that's that's the joke of course because what did reagan say reagan said and I can say this as I know this because I I I, I help I, I wrote speeches for him. Reagan said, "I didn't leave my party. My party left me. I didn't leave liberalism. Liberalism left me. Liberalism was everything that I believed in. It was pro-American. It was pro. You know, believed in the advancement of liberty. It believed this. It believed that. And then." It stopped believing in those things, and it actually started acting counter to those things. And so the Reagan coalition was the, uh, we like America and we enjoy living here coalition, and we don't think that it is irreparably damaged and in need of change. It's changed. It'll change some more. It should change for the better over time. But what it is at root is good. And here we are 40 years later, 45 years after the release of, of Smokey and the Bandit. And we're having all these uh, arguments and conversations again about the irreparable evil of America. In the 1970s, it was that we went abroad and did horrible, monstrous things. And we overthrew, you know, communists and we and we you know we assassinated people and we were just terrible and we did the had this imperialist war in vietnam and we were irredeemably bad now of course it's that we're irredeemably bad at root because of um our legacy of of of, of slavery and that in fact that the whole purpose of america was slavery and and not uh, not not anything else so it's a lot of weight to put on the shoulders of this um you know, of this kind of light-spirited, slap-happy, incredibly light-hearted movie um, in which the stakes are actually very low <laughs> and in which, you know, nobody is really, you know, it, it, it's so clear that everything is just play-acting. You know, everybody is play-acting because Jackie Gleason is the voice of authority, you know, is, is the sort of the villain. And, of course, he is just a sort of delightful, funny, uh, wise-ass guy who recognizes that you know this girl might have had a point running away from his son because he says at some point when his son says something particularly stupid there is no way there is no way that you sprung from my loins there is no way that you sprung from my loins and then he you know spits out his tobacco uh, onto the side of the road um anyway um noah you uh 
you yourself said you haven't seen Smokey and the Bandit for for many years, but you also saw it as a teenager, though of course twenty years after I was a teenager. Yeah, and I, and I, all I recall from that movie were was Gleason's performance. I barely remember Sally Field. I, I have almost no recollection of uh, Burt Reynolds, but Gleason stands out absolutely as a as you know the heavy, <clears throat> but also as just a, an, an inspiring comic performance um and so may i was thinking you know but maybe that the reason why you know it stands out to you differently now from when you viewed it as a teenager is because your perspective is a little different um and obviously it is because you see tremendous historical weight and and political (laughs) political implication uh in this otherwise irreverent uh you know as you say slap happy performance but yeah i mean that's all i recall from from the film look you know i guess i need to watch it again enormous box office successes uh, uh, you know of that day and that's what we're, when we talk about that that means you know we're talking about things that that are like both uh, hits as movies and hits as television shows mashed together like they made un, uh, unimaginable amounts of money that now only you know in relative terms that now only a marvel superhero movie can make um and, you know, a movie like this did not cost a lot of money. And so the question you ask yourself, if you're somebody like me and you've been doing this for so long, is what what did it capture in a bottle? What was it about this thing that comes out of nowhere and kind of becomes a sensation entirely on its own? It's not the marketing budget. It's not the TV commercial. It's not the promotion Everybody tells everybody else, you got to go see this. And then people like it so much that they see it again and again, which was the case with me. I think I saw it six or seven times when, you know, when it, when it was out uh, in my local theaters, because I loved it so much. What is it that causes that kind of enthusiasm? And that's where you can start to suss out the question of whether or not some national mood, some national spirit, something that connects to people in a larger way that was not intended by the people who made it, nonetheless was going on there and that you would do well to heed, you would do well to understand. Um, Star Wars was like that, by the way, that Star Wars also could, could have been taken as a kind of harbinger of a change in the national mood because it was a revivification of the Western good guys, bad guys. Darth Vader is a, is Trampus from the Virginian. He is a guy in a black suit with a black hat (laughs) and there's Han Solo and, and, and Luke Luke Skywalker dresses in white and Darth Vader dresses in black and, uh, and uh, Darth Vader is more powerful and, and uh, totalitarian and, Luke is just a sort of guy from the frontier and he faces him down and takes him out. And this is a Lucas was a counterculture guy. George Lucas was a counterculture guy. Didn't know that this was what he was proffering, but he was proffering an optimistic message about the victory of good over evil uh, in the universe that, um, that resonated with the country and helped uh, explain to people what was going on in 1980 when the Soviets were, you know, on the march in Afghanistan and the Iranians were taking our hostages and stuff. There were bad guys in the world. We still needed to f- fight face down. And people had, you know, that message had been received from in popular culture that this is something that people, you know, that was very much in people's 
hearts and heads. But even so, don't you feel as if uh, during that time, the movies and popular culture items were more about reflecting what was going on in sort of the American mind as opposed to instructing it, which is now what it's consumed with. Entertainment now is, is, is all about instruction, moral instruction, political instruction. Well, I mean, a lot of successful entertainment isn't about any, I mean, is right. now about nothing. I mean, that's part of what's interesting is that, you know, uh, Hollywood in particular had um, gradations of things. It was trying to hit home runs. It was trying to hit singles. It was trying to hit doubles. You make Smokey and the Bandit, that's to make a quick buck uh, in a certain region of the country. And then it, 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 it defies your expectations and becomes a national sensation. And so uh, there are a lot of different kinds of messages that that, that are going out. Now, um, all they try to do is hit home runs. Like, they're not interested. I mean, the art house, they're, they're worlds, specialty worlds that, that do this. But, I, I mean, I don't think that culture, pop culture is necessarily more, more didactic. I think a lot of the pangandra of culture and the people who sort of recommend it to people are only interested in the didactic progressive moral instruction stuff. That's why everyone's so crazy about The Handmaid's Tale or about, you know, I don't, I don't know, the, the Underground Railroad or whatever it is, uh, whatever pr- product there is that people, uh, you know, go go crazy over that 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 that, uh, that lays out the latest theory. Um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just a, it's sort of an interesting thing. And, 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 uh, and it's, uh, it's just as fun as it, as it was, uh, back then, what one thing also that uh, came out uh, comes out to me as we're we're talking about this. Um, so the movie was conceived and directed by a stuntman named Hal Needham, who then became uh, you know very successful director. Directed also did the same with Cannonball Run, which was another Burt Reynolds sort of like a box office triumph and a bunch of other things in the eighties. Um, Hal Needham uh, wrote a, a memoir called Stuntman that I highly commend to people. It is just a jaw-dropping American story of personal transformation. This kid from incredibly poor hardscrabble experiences, living off literally roadkill that his mother uh, would, 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 would cook uh, so that they could, they could eat uh, ends up as a, as a, as a lineman uh, in the San Fernando Valley kind of stumbles almost literally onto a movie set says he can do that when some, there's a stunt to be done becomes America's foremost stuntman and then becomes a friend of Burt Reynolds who whose stuntman he is. This is kind of like the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood story. Uh if you if if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's, you know, there's Leonardo DiCaprio is uh is a sort of fading actor and Brad Pitt is his stuntman. This is kind of not that Burt Reynolds was fading, but uh, at, at the at that time, but that this is the relationship between Hal Needham and and Burt Reynolds, and um, and w- anyway, this book is about sort of like how in America anything is possible, like literally anything is possible. The idea that this kid would end up, you know, like as a as a as a Hollywood creative force is so beyond the bounds of anything you could have imagined if you'd seen him when he was 15 
Um, and and the whole movie's like that in a weird way. Burt Reynolds started as a kind of method stage actor in New York, and then he was kind of like a, a, a kind of low burn, had a couple, two or three TV series in the 1960s, and then wholeheartedly and very deliberately and consciously turned himself into a movie star. Sally Field, who of course started out as Gidget, and was a kind of joke in Hollywood through sheer force of will, turned herself into a major American actress, winner of two Academy Awards. Jackie Gleason, who was a burlesque comedian, ends up becoming an early TV star and then, you know, becomes like a great dramatic actor with The Hustler. And then 16, 17 years later, does this a wild turn as this, as this Southern, as this Southern sheriff. So there's a lot of American transformations. Uh, going on there that are that are also part and parcel of the story that you're not allowed to tell anymore because of course you know uh, only, the only people who do well in America are people of privilege according to according to everything that we're told. Um, speaking of America and what you need to understand about America, we have really good job numbers today. And if you want to understand the job numbers today, you are going to go to our friends at the Bonson Group, the DCToday.com, DividendCafe.com. There are two newsletters. Uh, produced by this $3 billion under-management financial services firm headed by David Bonson. These newsletters, DC Today's Daily, Dividend Cafe's Weekly, provide you with all the analysis that you will ever need about daily stats, uh, changes in the market, what the Fed is doing, what the federal government is doing, how to understand these job numbers that came out today, all of that. Go to DividendCafe.com, sign up for these newsletters, let them flow into your inbox. Let them educate you. That's the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Abe, you have been sampling the cultural wares, transgressive cultural wares uh, that um, that used to be considered the great... Uh, ideological bulwark against the horrible bourgeois middle class soup uh, uh, of America, and you're finding something pretty interesting in them. Well, yeah, in particular, um, I just finally read Hubert Selby Jr.'s Last Exit to Brooklyn, which is a it's kind of a, a novel, kind of a sort of bunch linked short stories. Um, his debut book, I think, came out in the early '60s, but it's about the lower classes in Brooklyn. Uh, in the 1950s, and um, yeah, it was. It's uh, for decades. It's been embraced as this kind of um, uh, document of you know how America, I guess, grinds grinds the small people down or something. Um, but I was struck from the first page to the last by the fact that no right wing writer could have come up with a, a a more damning picture of what it means to live without purpose. Um, to live a life whereby you simply succumb to all your appetites without a moral code, to live outside uh, accepted norms. Um, it paints a, a really um, repulsive picture of um, what, what, what it means to live that way. And even beyond that, there's a, there's a sort of chapter or kind of a, a novella within the, 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 the novel itself <clears throat> that's all about um, a union strike. And uh, it's also the, the main character in that segment is also going through um, a bunch of sort of um, 
sexual grotesqueries, as as are people throughout the 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 book. And in that in that sense, you know, um, I guess it, it's 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 not it's not conservative in what it in what Selby saw fit to um, write about explicitly. But even there, it um, the purpose is to make you recoil with horror. Nevertheless, its depiction of unions is just this straightforward um, telling of unions being corrupt, greedy, bullies, useless, um, sort of destroying workers' uh, spirits. Um, so it, it was just a, it was it was an amazing. Uh, thing to read. I mean, I, I enjoy the book, uh, it, and and you know, at the very least, it, it clearly Selby thought that man was not perfectible, which is certainly a um, more of a conservative outlook on things. Do you have you uh, found this with other works of the last like thirty or forty years that uh, that they they tell a tale? Uh, different from the tale that the people who are writing them or making them or whatever think think they tell about about the worlds that they that they are portraying. I have a lot, and but unfortunately, because I forget everything I read and, <laughs> and watch, you know, in about a month yeah. after, I, I don't um, recall the many times that I have. But yeah, because there's usually, you know, there's usually some sort of um, like, uh, especially in these sort of sci-fi social. Uh, 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 big productions where there's supposed to be some sort of greedy, uh, privileged, um, uh, you know, f- force in society that's keeping the other people down. And then there's always another way to look at it where, you know, um, it's like, well, no, actually it's the, it's the micromanagement and um, sort of bureaucratic uh, uh, do-gooders who are actually destroying things. But I can't, but I, I, I aside from that framework, I can't remember um, but I have I have found that a lot. Yes. Um, there's, there's, I mean, I, yeah. Go ahead. Well, sorry. We're still on this, but then I realize there's something else I could talk about. Um, Go ahead. Culturally. Um, Go ahead. I also uh, just read a book called uh, "Reality Is Not What It Seems" uh, by Carlo Rovelli, who's a, a, a physicist. This is and this is not uh, fictional at all. This is a book about, and it came out, <clears throat> excuse me, about three years ago, about tracing. Um, sort of uh, physics from the ancients through um, uh, Einstein's relativity and then um, quantum mechanics uh, into the field that's now known as quantum gravity. Um, and it, it is great in, in its, his retelling of ancient mathematicians and... Um, really kind of ancient physicists, what, what, what they were up to, that stuff is um, really magisterial. Um, what starts to emerge in the book... Is the, title, the title again? Reality is not what it seems. Okay. What starts to emerge, though, in the book as he, as he gets closer to uh, the modern age um, is he's got a very strong anti-religious bias. Uh, it doesn't mar what he's up to the way it does with someone like Richard Dawkins. I mean, you know, I think uh, Dawkins wishes, you know, he could, he could um, sort of write uh, uh, as well as, as Ravelli and, and sort of his, that his ideas were as interesting, but what it does do his, this, the anti-religious bent for me is that 
when he's talking about things like uh, relativity and quantum mechanics, it saps a lot of the magic out of it. Um, uh, he 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 doesn't quite get into how strange those things really are and the and the and and what they've revealed. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. And then so when he, by the time he gets to quantum gravity, which is which is a, an effort to try to marry um, general relativity and quantum mechanics, and it's about the very nature of what space is made of, not not matter, but the the stuff in which uh, matter is swimming everywhere in the universe. Um, I don't know if I can um, sort of trust him there because I don't know anything about that. I know a little bit about uh, relativity and about uh, quantum mechanics. And, and if he's, you know, if he's what he's left out a lot of the magic there, so he may be leaving it out of the, the um, quantum gravity stuff as well. I'm, I'm impressed that you read beyond the introduction. So that alone it's uh, has already. Uh, it's okay. Um, still, Still, you, uh, your, uh, your, your capacity for that stuff is, uh, is, uh, is amazing because, uh, you know, I, I read it and then I literally forget what I read the previous paragraph. And then I have to go back and read the previous paragraph again. And then I don't remember what was in the paragraph that I read. Um, this is my own uh, perceptual gap when it comes to, you know, when it comes to anything outside of, you know, sort of fiction or, or politics. One thing I, I will mention, um, you watched 42nd street, the old movie, uh, you told me like last week, yeah. uh, uh, which is sort of like the, uh, and it is nothing as you discovered, as I discovered a year ago when I watched it also, it is nothing like the way people remember it. Um, it is actually a, a, a gritty, uh, it, it was it was conceived of and thought of as a gritty backstage story. It's not a musical. It shows musical numbers. It's about a, the staging of a musical. It is not itself a musical, and um, it's a it's a very dark melodramatic piece. Um, what blew my mind was yeah. that the the director, the man, the 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 role of the director who's putting on this fictional musical um is overtly gay uh and i, I don't mean gay in a, yeah. uh, a stereotypical way he's not at right. all um he's not remotely uh um sort of um you know uh sissified or or, or whatever what, however you know uh yeah. homosexuals have been portrayed on, on film he's he's very masculine and manly but there comes a point on the eve of the of the of their opening night where he summons his um, assistant director and says, uh, "Do you have any plans tonight?" And the assistant director says, "No." And he says, "I'm feeling, I'm feeling very lonesome. Would you, would you, would you come home with me?" Um, and then I, I went online, as as we all do now, and I, I looked up Forty uh, Second Street Gay, and uh, it turns out that the that the that the novel on which the movie was based this 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 was absolutely intended and was even fleshed out much more. Right. And I went the and discovered, yeah. right, I discovered that the novel by Bradford Ropes is now, it was not uh, a year ago when I went looking for it, um, available on Amazon in a weird kind of PDF form. And I downloaded it 
and it is a it is a shockingly uh, interesting, uh, mildly anti-Semitic, sort of casually anti-Semitic uh, book. But yeah, very very explicitly um, racy, dirty. Uh, you know, uh, characters who are, you know, just kind of like fun-loving girls, you know, fun, high-stepping, you know, sassy uh, chorus girls in, in the movie are, 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 are out-and-out hookers and alcoholics in the, in the novel, and there is this explicit uh, homosexual current. Um, anyway, it's just interesting because it's more like, I don't know what it's like. I mean, it's more like flash dance or something like that than it is like you know like a you know like the like the musical you think it is whether you're going out there a youngster but you're coming back a star you know and then she goes and she's a star you know that's actually a darker thing in the show in the movie than it is you know in the in the stage version that was done like uh 50 years later anyway it's very well worth seeing it's on hbo max or where where did you see it it, yeah yeah and so um uh if you see it it'll surprise you because it's not not what you think it is and you know what else isn't what you think it is the world uh right now dealing with corona and what things are going to be like post corona and if you want to know what the world's going to be like post corona you got to download the post corona podcast with Dan Senor from Google Play and Stitcher and wherever good podcasts are sold um his latest is with Muhammad Al Arian uh one of the leading uh economic e- economists of our time number 2 at Pimco uh former key uh, key figure at the World Bank uh, ran the Harvard Hedge Fund, uh, now is the president of Queen's College at Cambridge, and uh, they discuss inflation on the latest episode, and uh, they are both worried about it. Al-Aryan is very worried about inflation. He does not think it's transitory. He thinks that efforts to redefine it as transitory are fool's errands that are just going uh, are, are to come back to haunt the people who want to pretend that it's not as serious a problem as it is. And so, uh, please, by all means, if you haven't started subscribing to Dan Singer's Post-Corona, uh, which I've been on a couple of times, you can hear Billy Bean of the Oakland Athletics, you can hear uh, Adam Grant from Wharton, uh, Neil Ferguson, um, uh, any number of, of, of great uh, uh, people talking about what we can imagine the world is going to be like when we get ourselves uh, out of the shadow of the virus that's the post-corona podcast get it today noah you um you have been watching something on apple tv plus well yes um as regular listeners know i have no time to myself anymore i'm finishing editing the book moving for some inexplicable reason thought that was a good idea um so very little downtime last time i read a book for fun was not coincidentally when i was on vacation and that was um, Jesse Norman's uh, biography of Adam Smith, uh, which he does a very good job of. He did something very similar with Edmund Burke, um, in which he details the life and times and how they formed his opinions and then moves on in the second half of the book to what those the theory and philosophies that he uh, espoused were. Um, so to give you some idea of how his thinking matured and evolved over the course of his lifetime. It's very good. He's a great author. He's also a minister of parliament. Um, recommend that. However... When I get time to myself, and it's rare, it's you know, it's popular media products. And the popular media products I manage to consume, I have two recommendations. One's good and one's bad. Um, 
The first is uh, Apple TV's uh, uh, dra- drama uh, native to the to Apple TV's outlet, so you have to have Apple TV to see it. Um, For all mankind, really clever um, revisionist history, alternative history, in which the Soviets beat us to the moon by a week in 1969, and that premise establishes uh, a, an alternative timeline in which the space race never ends. And uh, we continue on to the moon, establish a, a, a presence on the moon, and engage in geopolitics on the moon. And it's a, it's very clever, very well written, very well acted. Um, there's a little bit of uh, of modernist presentism, I think, in the narrative. Nevertheless, it's it's still a very clever um, piece of of culture, a cultural artifact. I like it a lot. It's also because it's 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 science fiction, which and it's space, which appeals to me. But it's not science fictional because it takes place many years in the past and tries to position the narrative in, in that, in that ethos, in the, what people believed at the time, what the technology was at the time. So it's very good. I recommend it. Uh, my thumbs down, which I nevertheless also recommend so that you will watch it and suffer along with me is a Netflix documentary on Woodstock 1999. Now, um, there was a Woodstock in 96, there was a Woodstock in 99. The 99 one was kind of a debacle, but, this documentary doesn't doesn't actually document events as they occurred. It is a revisionist perspective on Woodstock '99 from a moral framework that is prevalent today among the progressive left. It analyzes the events in 1999 as one would from the perspective of 2021 with a a, a framework that you see uh, on display on the progressive left. Woodstock 1999 was bigoted, was racist, was sexist, was misogynist. Um, it, it was all the ists that that the modern progressive left invades against today, and all of these ethos ethoses that they apply here and the, and the criticism that they apply here uh, is from a, a an ethical uh, framework that did not exist at the time or was not enforced at the time. So it is entirely revisionist. I mean, it finds it finds the origins of Trumpism in a music concert in which everybody was young and center left at the time. Um, it is it is it is shocking insofar as it is an effort to force this event to comport with the moral standards that prevail today on the progressive left, which is indicative of a of a of a philosophy that is that is very prominent today, which cannot abide historical um, it cannot abide history. All of history must be forced into a prism that uh, views, uh, that, that does not abide by uh, the kind of, uh, the ideals that prevailed at the time. It does not, it does not abide by the idea, and this is, this is applicable across history, it doesn't abide by the idea that these people existed in their own time and that there was a, a different uh, perspective that was applied. And not only that, but that it was, it was uh, you know, accepted. And that's the sort of thing that is applied to the American founding. It is applied to the 19th century. It is applied across the board. There is no room for the notion that the the ethics that prevail today were not the ethics that prevailed a decade ago or 200 years ago. Um, and in that, there's a lesson for the modern progressive insofar as their ethics won't apply forever. Someone will come along to review this period of history and they won't be very kind, I suspect. So yes, if it's not it's not a documentary. It's not it's not a review of what happened. It's a review of how they wish things would have happened 
And the fact that it happened uh, in ways that they don't like makes it much more, much more a display of these people preening and putting on a performative, uh, you know, a, a display of their own virtues rather than reviewing the history as we understood it, which is the, the way a lot of popular culture is actually going. But in that sense, it's a very interesting artifact and worth watching. Just hate watching. Hate watching is good. And, uh, and uh, some people uh, hate listen to this podcast and uh, uh, we are going to um, spare them uh, uh, further pain uh, because we are not entirely sure whether this uh, even uh, was successfully recorded. Uh, we are going to cut this short uh, in hopes that it was. And if you're hearing my voice, it was, and you're going to be able to listen to it. Um, and uh, but we we need to cut our cut our losses, uh, and we'll be back on Monday with uh, Christine Rosen, who will be who will be returning. Uh, and we again thanks and apologies to Dan Cass for wasting his time. And uh, with that, uh, I am for Abe and Noah. I am John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.